Evening, my name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Hill, it's great you can join us for Night Church. You may or may not know, but our um, morning church has been doing pop-up church around Wellington for the last two Sundays, um, because of uh, our regular venues being closed, and it's been a great uh, chance to take church on the road. Uh, this morning uh, was particularly special because we went to Johnsonville, uh, which is where our church started, uh, in my living room, uh, up on the hill in Johnsonville, uh, and What's also special, which I didn't mention this morning, but I'll let you guys in on this little secret, is uh, this passage that we're looking at at tonight from Mark's Gospel was actually the passage that we first looked at when Cedar Hill was kind of publicly launched on the 8th of November 2015. So it's kind of all going full circle, uh, which is kind of exciting for me. But when we started Cedar Hill, uh, when you start a new church, it's good to have a a clear mind about what you're going to do. And I had three things clear in my mind about what Cedar Hill was going to be like. We were going to teach the Bible, we were going to love people, and we weren't going to be weird. Now, you might want to contest that third point as to whether we've succeeded or not at that, but hopefully you'll agree uh, on the first two, that that's what we've done. And what we're going to do right now is, as we look at the, the Bible, we're going to be doing the first two. We're going to be doing the first two, teaching the Bible and loving people. Because at Sydney Hill, we're convinced that those two things are inseparable. There is nothing more loving or more helpful or more kind than to share God's word with someone, to share with them the voice of the Lord in the Bible. Because in the Bible, we read about the God who loves us and the God who wants us to know him and the God who wants to know us. He wants to be in relationship with us because he longs to to draw us into his family and to bless us and to give us an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. So as we teach the Bible... We love people, and hopefully we'll do it in a way that's not too weird. So let's pray uh, with that in mind. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for the chance we have to read your word. And uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, these words that are written in Mark's gospel, they're not just random words, but they're your words for us, your people. We pray and thanks that these words are inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that as we listen, that your spirit will work in our hearts and our minds so that we might know you better, Uh, but not just that we might know you, but so that we might be known by you and transformed by what we hear you say. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It wasn't until uh, the year 2000 that um, the country of Equatorial Guinea kind of arrived on the global stage of international swimming. Uh, It was a man named Eric the Eel. Yeah, Eric the Eel, uh, he arrived... Uh, at the Sydney Olympics, representing Equatorial Guinea. Uh, Eric had learnt to swim nine months earlier, like, not, not like, like learnt to competitively swim, like actually learnt to swim nine months earlier. He learnt to swim in a local river uh, near his home uh, where he had to um, make sure that he, you know, you know how you go to the pool and there's like, uh, like times that like squads have, uh, he had to go to the, he, he could swim in the river only when the crocodiles and the snakes weren't swimming. That was the squads he was competing with. Um, he was invited to the Sydney 2000 Olympics as a wild card, uh, but he was standing there on the blocks with two other swimmers in his heats, uh, and, and, and as the gun's about to go for the start of the race, they both topple into the water, which means that they're disqualified, which means that he was the only swimmer in his 100 metres freestyle race. Uh, you'll be happy to know that uh, Eric the Eel, he, uh, he, he got in the water and he swam his race, and he swam it in a blistering time of 1 minute and 52 seconds. 
Now, I know some of you are swimmers, and you, you know exactly what that means. Uh, for those of you who are not swimmers, I looked up uh, the, the, the Wellington Junior Swimming Championships are supposed to be this weekend. Uh, and uh, if you want to compete in the under nines, 100 metres freestyle, uh, you need to do it in uh, a time of one minute and 40 seconds. So Eric's time at the Olympics was not enough to qualify as an under nine in the Wellington Junior Championships. Uh, it's a bit of a miracle that he even made it to the end after the 100 metres. Apparently he had never swum 100 metres before without taking a break halfway through. Uh, he dived into the water wearing borrowed trunks that he, uh, borrowed togs that he forgot to tie up. Uh, and to cap it all off, uh, his mum was quite shocked when she saw him on the TV about to dive into a pool because she didn't know that he could swim. She was quite worried about him. She thought he had gone to the Olympics to play basketball uh, and not swim. Uh, Eric the Eel, he had no chance, right? He was a hopeless situation. It was a hopeless set of circumstances. Uh, thankfully, uh, he became a bit of a cult hero, became quite famous. Uh, he ended up becoming the national swim coach for Equatorial Guinea. Uh, and he did bring his time down to uh, a respectable 57 seconds for the 100 metres freestyle. But he was hopeless. Uh, and we can all laugh about that sort of hopelessness. Uh, but as we look at this part of Mark's gospel, the Mark's biography about Jesus, we're going to find some people who are in really hopeless situations. Uh, and there's nothing funny about it. Much more hopeless than Eric the Eel. We'll, we'll, and we'll see that in the middle of these hopeless and these desperate and these broken situations, that Jesus wants to know them. He wants to know them so that he can heal them and bring them hope. Uh, now, uh, we're going to be looking at Mark's biography about Jesus. A biography is a great way to get to know someone who you haven't met uh, but not all biographies are created equal. Apparently Alec Baldwin put out a biography uh, and is uh, notoriously known as the worst biography ever written. Apparently in its first week it sold 12 copies. Uh, so thankfully the biographies of Jesus have fared a little bit better than that. Uh, and Mark's Gospel, uh, the main source uh, we, we understand for Mark's Gospel is the Apostle Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And one of the great things about the biographies about Jesus in the Bible is that um, they tell us a lot about Jesus. They tell us about who he met. They tell us about what he did and what he said. But they, they tell us more than facts. Uh, these biographies actually show us what Jesus was like. We actually get an insight into Jesus' heart as we read them, what sort of person he was. Uh, they, and they help us to actually get to know Jesus, not just know things about him. Uh, and as we look at this uh, section in Mark chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus, he brings hope to the hopeless. Uh, Jesus brings hope to those that he gets to know. Uh, so what's been happening so far in Mark's Gospel, we looked at chapter 1 uh, last Sunday, but we're kind of jumping forward to chapter 5. Uh, but what's happened so far is that Mark has become, no, sorry, Jesus has become a really controversial figure. Uh, in, in chapter 5, there are crowds that are flocking to Jesus from all over the place. Uh, word is getting out about his teaching and about his miracles and about how he's saving people from evil spirits. And, and the crowds just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but as the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger, Jesus has also attracted the attention of the religious leaders. And they're not very happy with Jesus. Actually, already by Mark chapter 5, they've already hatched a plan for how they're going to kill him. And so Jesus is a really controversial figure. Uh, but there's a man who's, who, who knows the controversy surrounding Jesus, but he's willing to take a risk on Jesus. And his name's Jairus. We meet them there in uh, verse 21. Have a look at verse 21 with me. Uh, verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again, over, had crossed again, 
Sorry, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. What we see here in Mark chapter 5 is a really chaotic scene. Uh, It's by the side of the lake, there's a bustling crowd, there's a distressed parent, uh, and they're all swarming around Jesus. Now this distressed parent, Jairus, uh, there's a few things we can work out about him. First, we're told he's at Uh, He's a synagogue leader, so that means his responsibility was to uh, make sure that there was orderly worship of God at the synagogue. Uh, We're told that, um, uh, we're we're told his name, uh, which is rare in the Gospels. If you find out someone's name, it probably means that they were someone of high status, probably quite wealthy, probably even someone that the the original readers might have heard about or might know about. Uh, So uh, Jairus is a significant person. He would have been well known in his area. And Jairus, he would have been well known to the religious leaders who are now plotting to kill Jesus. And so Jairus, the wealthy, respected religious leader, the bloke whose job it is to make sure everything's done properly and orderly at the synagogue, well, he seems to lose the plot. He breaks through the crowd and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. He falls down at this polarizing, this controversial teacher. Uh, At verse 22, it says, When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. He drops at Jesus' feet like a beggar, desperate, hopeless, pleading with Jesus. This is a costly move for Jairus. This is very public. There is no hiding here what Jairus is doing. He's in front of everyone and he's at the feet of Jesus. Uh, It would have been the talk of the town. It would have been on the agenda the next time the synagogue got together. There would be consequences for Jairus as to what he was doing at this moment. But there he is at the feet of Jesus, pleading with Jesus, not as a religious leader, but as a father, as a parent. Verse 23, he's pleading with Jesus. Verse 23, my little girl is dying. He comes to Jesus as someone who is desperate for some hope. Uh, Now, uh, I've been in Jairus' sandals before. Um, I have a very clear memory of the night where I was at a meeting. I got a message from uh, my wife Adele during the meeting saying, don't come home, uh, go straight to the hospital after your meeting because uh, there's some news the doctors want to tell us about how Isaac, our son, is going. Uh, I got to the hospital and a nurse uh, turns up in uh, Isaac's room and ha- has a bunch of toys for him to play with. Uh, and she says, I'll, I'll, just, I'll look after Isaac while you guys go and have a meeting with the doctor. And they ushered us into a treatment room uh, in the hospital. I remember very vividly that the treatment room had posters of Minions and Frozen on the wall. And it had this train track that ran around the top of the room to entertain children while they did uh, all sorts of things to them. And and the most senior paediatrician at the hospital came in to talk to us and to explain that our son had leukaemia. That was our gyrus moment. And, and the moment the doctor finished explaining everything to us, uh, Adele, my wife and I, we just prayed. We, we, we threw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and we prayed that God would heal our son, that he would do something for him. And here, Jairus, he is in that place. Verse 23, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. He's a man in crisis. He's a man looking for hope. 
He's looking for hope in Jesus and he's willing to risk it all. He's willing to risk it all. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, verse 24, it says, Jesus went with him. So Jesus goes, he, he leaves the crowd and he heads in the direction of Jairus' house. And the crowd, they all follow on behind him. And Jairus is going along and Jairus is quite excited. He's probably his heart skipped a beat. There's a glimmer of hope. Maybe, just maybe, this risk of falling at the feet of this controversial teacher, maybe it's going to pay off for me. Maybe my daughter is going to get better. This could be a miracle. And as the crowd set off with Jesus, Mark, the writer of the biography, introduces us to another person. Another person in a hopeless situation. And this time it's a woman. And this woman is at the complete other end of the religious and social food chain to that of Jairus. See, Jairus was a somebody. But this woman, well, she was a nobody. Uh, This woman, we're not given her name. Uh, She's suffering from a chronic illness that's lasted for over a decade. And the passage said she's been bleeding for 12 years. It's the same amount of time that this little girl has been alive. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And and what that means is that her monthly period, instead of being uh, a monthly cycle, it's been going on month after month, year after year, continuously for 12 years. And there's something that's particularly hopeless about a chronic condition. This, This kind of injury or illness that just goes on and on and on and there's no real sign or hope of improvement. And that's where this woman is. She's in this dark place with little or no hope. Have a look at verse 26. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. And if that wasn't enough to be suffering and to be um, spending all your money, there were other consequences to this illness as well. I think we'd all agree it's a rather personal illness. It's not something that you share around uh, the dinner table with your friends Uh, And it's not just the physical and financial suffering, there's a social and religious dimension to her suffering here as well. You see, under Jewish law, women, uh, when they had their monthly period, they were considered unclean. They weren't allowed to attend the temple. They weren't allowed to uh, come into contact with other people uh, as well. And if someone came in contact with them, then they would be made unclean as well. And, And so a person like this, well, essentially she's been barred from the community of God's people permanently for 12 years, an outcast amongst her own people, amongst her own community. Uh, We stress about the possibility of being in MIQ for two two weeks or having to stay home for half a day while we wait the results of a COVID test, right? Kind of, we don't like it. This woman's been in some form of isolation for 12 years. But she knows, just like Jairus, she knows that Jesus is her only hope. Uh, she sees Jesus. Uh, she, must, uh, she mustn't see Jesus and know that she doesn't have a, have a hope of being able to talk to him. And, and really, uh, in this sort of situation, this woman in a crowd, the, the less people who see her there, the less people who notice her there, the better. Uh, and so uh, she, she heads off in Jesus' direction. Uh, she knows, she hopes that Jesus has the power to heal her. All she needs to do is to touch him. And so verse 27 When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Now, verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She's healed. She's free. Uh, One writer puts it like this. They say that 12 years of shame and frustration 
are resolved in a momentary touch of Jesus. Twelve years of of shame and frustration. But how is Jesus going to respond to this? Well, verse 30, at once Jesus realised that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched me? That's a little bit weird, right? Um, Jesus here behaves in a way that seems quite strange. At first time, uh, you read it, it sounds like Jesus is a bit of a superhero and someone's kind of come up with some sort of kryptonite or something and they've touched him and he can feel power being drawn out of them. It's kind of strange. That's not usually how things work with Jesus. But the other thing here is uh, Jesus asks, who touched my clothes? It sounds like Jesus is really powerful. He can heal people. He's just healed this woman. Uh, he's, he's, he's driven out demons. Uh, he can do um, all these amazing things, but he doesn't quite have the superpower of kind of social awareness. Uh, he can walk on water. He can calm storms, but he can't work out who in the crowd touched him. It seems a little bit strange. Why, why does he kind of put this kind of extra step in the process? And the disciples, they're kind of scratching their heads as they look at Jesus as well. And they're like, Jesus, you're in a massive crowd. It's chaos. Everyone is touching you. Uh, it'd be like at, you're at the bottom of the ruck in rugby and you're like, who's touching me? Who's, who's touching me? Uh, what kind of question is that? And the, and the timing is pretty inconvenient as well. Like Jesus, he's on a tight schedule. He's, he's off to see a dying girl. Um, and you can imagine the disciples there, they're looking at their watch and they're shuffling their feet and, they're, and, and, they're, and for good reason. Jesus, he's got to get there. He's got to get to Jairus' daughter. She's, she's, she's on death's door. It's like the ambulance being diverted. The ambulance is on its way to a cardiac arrest and it, and it gets diverted to someone who's stubbed their toe. Uh, one's life-threatening and one is not. If Jairus' daughter and the, this woman turned up at the hospital at the same time, well, Jairus' daughter would see the doctor straight away and this woman, uh, well, unfortunately, she'd probably be one of these people who sits around in ED for half a day. But strangely, not so for Jesus. Strangely, Jesus stops. The whole procession to Jairus' house, it grinds to a halt as Jesus is determined to find out who this woman is. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet. Trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Here she is gripped with fear, feeling unworthy, feeling ashamed, feeling unclean, feeling like she's now going to suffer the consequences of making this holy religious teacher unclean. And so how is Jesus going to treat her? She risked making him unclean. She, she, she treated him like a lucky charm. Is Jesus going to put her in her place? Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's beautiful, isn't it? Rather than kind of coming down on her like a ton of bricks, he speaks to her tenderly like a, like a child, daughter. Tenderly he, he, and gently he restores her. And not just restoring her physical health, he restores her socially and emotionally and spiritually. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. You see, she gets much more than she bargained with with Jesus. She thought she could touch Jesus and just go away and get on with her life. But if she really wants to go away in peace, 
Jesus needed to know her. If she really wants to go away in peace, Jesus needed to know her. As one writer puts it like this, this woman wants a cure, she wants a something, whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter. He wants a someone. Uh, now, for some of us, we might like the sound of Jesus. We might like the, we might like the experience of coming to church, um, uh, but we don't want Jesus himself, we don't want God himself to get too close to us. We feel the safest thing is to kind of keep Jesus at an arm's length, uh, keep him at a bit of a distance, and just enjoy the, the, the fringe benefits of being in and around his people. But that's not how it works with Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus warns, um, in a pretty kind of confronting part of the Bible, in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 talks about uh, what things will be like in the last day, uh, where, when, when it's all said and done and people are coming to Jesus and pleading for the, him to let them, uh, let them into his eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that he will send them away, and he'll send them away saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. See, that's how faith in Jesus works. Jesus is not a supernatural vending machine that you can kind of rock up to and punch a few buttons and you get what you want and then move on. No, Jesus wants to know us. He doesn't just want to be known by us, but he wants to know us. He wants relationship. Jesus wants to know you. To be saved by him is to have a real relationship with him. It's to live with him as our hope and our future. As so we see here in the crowd, Jesus wants to know this woman. And why? Because people matter to Jesus. He doesn't want to just he just doesn't just want to help you, he wants to know you. Because being known by Jesus, that's where true peace. Being known by Jesus, that's where true healing and freedom can be found. Being known by Jesus, that's where hope is found for the hopeless. But back to the story. Jesus' detour uh, is interrupted with news from the synagogue leader's house. Uh, someone has come from Jairus' house and they bring news to Jesus and the news, it's not good. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? Now Jairus' nightmare has come true. It's worth sparing a thought for Jairus here. He's, he had Jesus' attention. He, he had Jesus on the way to help his daughter and Jesus was held up. He's been held up by this unclean woman with this kind of long-term chronic illness. With this woman, sure she is sick and her situation is, 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 is unpleasant, but she's still going to be here tomorrow and the next day and the next day and probably the year after that. See, Jairus has put his, his, his social standing, his job, his reputation on the line. He's taken this massive risk, and now it seems like it was for nothing. Hopeless again. Humiliated himself, but because of this delay, his daughter has died anyway. So what does Jesus have to say to Jairus? Verse 36. Jesus told him, verse 36, Don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, what does that mean? What do you think that means for a man like Jairus? Now, Jairus is the guy who's usually in charge. He's the guy who's usually got all the things under control. It's his job to keep things in order, to keep things ticking along. And now his control, it's all been swept away. 
And Jesus is telling him, your world has come crashing down. But I've got this. It's going to be okay. This is in my hands. You just need to trust me. And so they head off to the house to see his little girl. Uh, when they get there, there are these professional mourners and they've already started. And in the ancient world, it was a, a, a thing that they did that there are these people who would turn up to a house with instruments and they would be there to help people weep and wail as a way to express their grief. Um, and Jesus turns up and, and the whole thing shifts around. He turns it all on his head. Uh, verse 39, have a look. Verse 39, he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. Now, this, the mourners, they laugh at Jesus. See, the mourners, they're, they're, they're like funeral directors, right? They, they, their, whole, their whole work is to be in the presence of dead people. So they know a dead body when they see one. And the girl is certainly dead. But Jesus, he takes control of the crowd. He tells the mourners to go away. And he selects a small group of people and goes in to see the little girl. And he shows Jairus. And he shows the disciples. He shows us that death... Well, death is simply sleep when it's Jesus' hand that you hold. Death is simply sleep when it's Jesus' hand that you hold. Verse 40, Jesus took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went into the, where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk around. You see, death is simply sleep when it's Jesus' hand that you hold. Jesus wakes her like a, like a, like a parent waking a daughter who's slept in. A little girl, it's, it, it's, it's time to wake up. And it's, 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 it's a really beautiful moment, a really tender moment. Away from the chaos of the crowds, away from the watching eyes of the leaders, just Jesus and this little family and this little girl. And in this room, this family gets to experience the peace and hope and life that can only be found when Jesus takes us by the hand. And when we see this, when we see Jesus' power over death, when we see the peace that he brings, we see that there was no need for him to rush. Jesus had it all under control. And I, when I read this, it makes me feel a little bit silly for always wanting Jesus to get with my schedule. Uh, I, I always want Jesus to work things according to my timetable. But we don't need to worry about that if Jesus has taken us by the hand. Everything will be okay in his timing. Full and true and lasting peace only comes, hope only comes when he brings it in his timing. And so what do you or I make of this dramatic little passage? Uh, whether our life is on track and everything's going great or whether we're feeling a little bit like Eric the Eel in his last 10 metres as he's grasping for breath, our situation is hopeless, wherever we're at, what do we make of Jesus? Well, the first thing is that we can come to Jesus, sorry, we can't come to Jesus wanting hope and healing and still expect to be the one who's in charge. We can't come to Jesus and expect to be the boss. To Jairus, he was the boss. But when he came to Jesus, he threw himself on the ground at the feet of Jesus. We need to come like Jairus. We need to humble ourselves before him, submit ourselves to him, risk everything for him. 
When we come to Jesus, we can't come expecting to be the boss. The second thing we need to do is we need to hope in Jesus' timing. You see, Jesus has shown us that he is the one who is in control. I know that there are people in this room who wish that their lives were different, and they wish that they were different now. Whether it be healing, whether it be kind of where your life is at in your relationships, whether it be a situation with your friends or your family, whether it be to do with the border or your job, we want life different now. We want blessing now. We want healing now. But we need to hope in Jesus' timing for these things. See, Jesus offers us hope beyond our present troubles. This woman suffered for 12 years before she was healed. But then she left in peace. This girl died before she was given life. It's right, it's good, it's proper for us to ask for God to intervene. But we need to remember that he does in his timing. We need to remember that he has it all in his hands. And if we trust him, if we let him take us by the hand, then we will experience the hope and the healing that he, that he can bring as he leads us into his eternal kingdom. But we'll always experience it in his timing. And the final thing that we need to learn from this passage is that Jesus wants to know you. Jesus came so that we might know him and through knowing him we might know God his Father. But Jesus also came so that we might be known by him, so that he might know us. And that's where real hope and healing is found. It's found in a relationship with Jesus. He wants a relationship with you that will bring you peace and hope, a relationship with you that will bring you healing and will make you clean before God. And Sinai Hill, that's what we're all on about. We're on about people coming to know Jesus and being known by Jesus. We're on about loving Jesus and being loved by Jesus. So don't hold him at arm's length. Come close to him. Let him come close to you and experience the hope and the healing that he can only bring. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not standoffish, that you have not stayed at a distance, but... In your son, Jesus, you have come close to us. And so, Lord, we pray that we will not just know Jesus, but that we will be known by him. That we'll open up our hearts to him, our hopes, our dreams, our troubles, our fears, our struggles, that we might pour them out to him. That we might humble ourselves before him and entrust everything to him so that we might experience the hope and the healing that only he can bring, that we might experience the peace that he offers for those who are known by him. And Lord, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.